Hello and welcome, friends, family, and of course, enemies alike, to episode 123 of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite, Phil Olson. Throughout this quote-unquote season or chapter of the podcast, I will be going through two books, and I currently am, the first being The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, and the second book being The Great Gadsby by F. Scott Fitzgerald. So last week, we began reading The Great Gadsby, and this week, we're picking up again back in the midst of The Case of the Mazarin Stone. So if you want to actually listen to the reading of that episode, it is episode 121. But if you just want to dive right back into the story, let me provide you a brief recap of what has happened thus far. So last time we read this book, Watson has re-entered back into Holmes's life after an indeterminate amount of time away from him to Holmes in the thick of a case to recover one of the crown jewels known as the Mazarin Stone, which is basically a yellow diamond. It seems Holmes knows the who, he just doesn't know the where of this diamond. Holmes has been baiting his prime suspect with disguises, decoys, and is now preparing to cast his final snare to coerce a confession out of Count Negretto Silvius, a half-Italian man, and his accomplice, Sam Merton. This case is unique in the fact that it is not penned from the first-person perspective of Holmes or Watson, as are the majority of future cases. So it almost feels like we're kind of intruding into this case a little bit. However, since we've already made it into Holmes's apartment or I guess the British call it a flat. Let's barge right back in, shall we? So without further ado, The Casebook of Sherlock Holmes, The Adventure of the Mazarin Stone, by Sir Arthur Conan Doyle. Content warning. The following contains small amounts of profanity. It was, therefore, an empty room into which Billy... A minute later, ushered Count Silvius. The famous game-shot sportsman and man about town was a big, swarthy fellow with a formidable dark mustache, shading a cruel, thin-lipped mouth, and surmounted by a long, curved nose, like the beak of an eagle. He was well-dressed, but his brilliant necktie, shining pin, and glittering rings were flamboyant in their effect. As the door closed behind him, he looked round him with fierce, startled eyes, like one who suspects a trap at every turn. Then he gave a violent start as he saw the impassive head and collar of the dressing gown which projected above the armchair in the window. At first, his expression was one of pure amazement. Then, the light of a horrible hope gleamed in his dark, murderous eyes. He took one more glance round to see that there were no witnesses, and then, on tiptoe, his thick stick half-raised, he approached the silent figure. 
He was crouching for his final spring and blow when a cool, sardonic voice greeted him from the open bedroom door. Oh, don't break it, Count. Don't break it. The assassin staggered back, amazement in his convulsed face. For an instant, he half-raised his loaded cane once more, as if he would turn his violence from the effigy to the original. But there was something in that steady gray eye and mocking smile which caused his hand to sink to his side. It's a pretty little thing, said Holmes, advancing towards the image. Tavernier, the French modeler, made it. He is as good at waxworks as your friend Strabenzias at air guns. Air guns, sir? What do you mean? Put your hat and stick on the side table, thank you. Pray, take a seat. Would you care to put your revolver out also? Oh, very good, if you prefer to sit upon it. Your visit is really most opportune, for I wanted badly to have a few minutes' chat with you. The Count scowled with heavy, threatening eyebrows. I, too, wished to have some words with you, Holmes. That is why I am here. I won't deny that I intended to assault you just now. Holmes swung his leg on the edge of the table. I rather gathered that you had some idea of the sort in your head, said he. But why these personal attentions? Because you have gone out of your way to annoy me. Because you have put your creatures upon my track. My creatures? I assure you, no. Nonsense. I have had them followed. Two can play at that game, Holmes. It is a small point, Count Silvius, but perhaps you would kindly give me my prefix when you address me. You can understand that, with my routine of work, I should find myself on familiar terms with half the rogues' gallery, and you will agree that exceptions are invidious. Well, Mr. Holmes, then. Excellent. But I assure you, you are mistaken about my alleged agents. Count Silvius laughed contemptuously. <laughs> Other people can observe as well as you. Yesterday there was an old sporting man. Today it was an elderly woman. They held me in view all day. Really, sir, you compliment me. Old Baron Dowson said the night before he was hanged that in my case, what the law had gained, the stage had lost. And now you give my little impersonations your kindly praise. It was you? You yourself? Holmes shrugged his shoulders. You can see in the corner the parasol which you so politely handed to me in the minories before you began to suspect? If I had known, you might never have seen this humble home again. I was well aware of it. We all have neglected opportunities to deplore. As it happens, you did not know. So here we are. The Count's knotted brows gathered more heavily over his menacing eyes. What you say only makes the matter worse. It was not your agents, but your play-acting busybody self 
you admit that you have dogged me. Why? Come now, Count. You used to shoot lions in Algeria. Well? But why? Why? The sports, uh, the excitement, the danger. And no doubt to free the country from a pest? Exactly. My reasons, in a nutshell. The Count sprang to his feet, and his hand involuntarily moved back to his hip pocket. Sit down, sir, sit down. There was another more practical reason. I want that yellow diamond. Count Silvius lay back in his chair with an evil smile. Upon my word, said he, you knew that I was after you for that. The real reason why you are here tonight is to find out how much I know about the matter and how far my removal is absolutely essential. Well, I should say that from your point of view, it is absolutely essential, for I know all about it, save only one thing, which you are about to tell me. Oh, indeed. And pray, what is this missing fact? Where the crown diamond now is? The Count looked sharply at his companion. Oh, you want to know that, do you? How the devil should I be able to tell you where it is? You can, and you will. Indeed. You can't bluff me, Count Silvius. Holmes's eyes, as he gazed at him, contracted and lightened until they were like two menacing points of steel. You are absolute plate glass. I can see to the very back of your mind. Then of course you see where the diamond is. Holmes clapped his hands with amusement and then pointed a derisive finger. Ah, then you do know. You have admitted it. I admit nothing. Now count, if you will be reasonable, we can do business. If not, you will get hurt. Count Silvius threw up his eyes to the ceiling. And you talk about bluff, said he. Holmes looked at him thoughtfully, like a master chess player who meditates his crowning move. Then he drew open the table drawer and drew out a squat notebook. Do you know what I keep in this book? No, sir, I do not. You? Me? Yes, sir, you. You are all here. Every action of your jovial and dangerous life. Damn you, Holmes! cried the Count, with blazing eyes. There are limits to my patience! It's all here, Count. The real facts as to the death of old Mrs. Harold, who left you the Bleemer estate, which you so rapidly gambled away. You are dreaming. And the complete life history of Miss Minnie Warrender. You will make nothing of that. Plenty more here, Count. Here is the robbery in the train deluxe to the Riviera on February 13th, 1892. Here is the forged check in the same year on the Credit Lyonnaise. No, you're wrong there. Ha! 
then I am right about the others. Now, Count, you are a card player. When the other fellow has all the trumps, it saves time to throw down your hand. What is all this talk to do with the jewel of which you spoke? Gently, Count, restrain that eager mind. Let me get to the points in my own humdrum fashion. I have all this against you, but above all, I have a clear case against both you and your fighting bully in the case of the Crown Diamond. Indeed. I have the cabman who took you to Whitehall, and the cabman who brought you away. I have the commissioner who saw you near the case. I have Ikey Sanders who refused to cut it up for you. Ikey has peached, and the game is up. The veins stood out on the Count's forehead. His dark, hairy hands were clenched in a convulsion of restrained emotion. He tried to speak, but the words would not shape themselves. That's the hand I play from, said Holmes. I put it all upon the table, but one card is missing. It's the King of Diamonds. I don't know where the stone is. You never shall know. No? Now be reasonable, Count. Consider the situation. You are going to be locked up for twenty years. So is Sam Merton. What good are you going to get out of your diamond? None in the world. But if you hand it over, well, I'll compound a felony. We don't want you or Sam. We want the stone. Give that up, and so far as I'm concerned, you can go free so long as you behave yourself in the future. If you make another slip, well, it will be the last. But this time, my commission is to get the stone, not you. But if I refuse? Why then, alas, it must be you and not the stone. Billy had appeared in answer to a ring. I think, Count, that it would be as well to have your friend Sam at this conference. After all... His interests should be represented. Billy, you will see a large and ugly gentleman outside the front door. Ask him to come up. If he won't come, sir. No violence, Billy. Don't be rough with him. If you tell him that Count Silvius wants him, he will certainly come. What are you going to do now? Asked the Count as Billy disappeared. My friend Watson was with me just now. I told him that I had a shark and a gudgeon in my net. Now I am drawing up the net, and up they come together. The Count had risen from his chair, and his hand was behind his back. Holmes held something half-protruding from the pocket of his dressing gown. You won't die in your bed, Holmes. I have often had the same idea. Does it matter very much? After all, Count, your own exit is more likely to be perpendicular than horizontal. But these anticipations of the future are morbid. Why not give ourselves up to the unrestrained enjoyment of the present? A sudden wild beast light sprang up in the dark, menacing eyes of the master criminal. 
Holmes's figure seemed to grow taller as he grew tense and ready. It is no use your fingering your revolver, my friend, he said in the quiet voice. You know perfectly well that you dare not use it, even if I gave you time to draw it. Nasty, noisy things, revolvers count. Better stick to air guns. Ah, I think I hear the fairy footstep of your estimable partner. Good day, Mr. Merton. Rather dull in the street, is it not? The prize fighter, a heavily built young man with a stupid, obstinate, slab-sided face, stood awkwardly at the door, looking about him with a puzzled expression. Holmes's debonair manner was a new experience, and though he vaguely felt that it was hostile, he did not know how to counter it. He turned to his more astute comrade for help. What's the game now, Count? What's this fellow want? What's up? His voice was deep and raucous. The Count shrugged his shoulders, and it was Holmes who answered. If I may put it in a nutshell, Mr. Merton, I should say it was all up. The boxer still addressed his remarks to his associate. Is this cove trying to be funny or what? I'm not in the funny mood myself. No, I expect not, said Holmes. I think I can promise that you will feel even less humorous as the evening advances. Now look here, Count Silvius. I'm a busy man, and I can't waste time. I'm going into that bedroom. Pray make yourselves quite at home in my absence. You can explain to your friend how the matter lies without the restraint of my presence. I shall try over the Hoffman Barcarolle upon my violin. In five minutes, I shall return for your final answer. You quite grasp the alternative, do you not? Shall we take you, or shall we have the stone? Holmes withdrew, picking up his violin from the corner as he passed. A few moments later, the long-drawn, wailing notes of that most haunting of tunes came faintly through the closed door of the bedroom. "'What is it, then?' asked Merton, anxiously, as his companion turned to him. "'Does he know about the stone?' "'He knows a damned sight too much about it.' I'm not sure that he doesn't know all about it. Good Lord! The boxer's sallow face turned a shade whiter. Ike Sanders has split on us. He has, has he? I'll do him down a thicken for that if I swing for it. That won't help us much. We've got to make up our minds what to do. Affamo, said the boxer, looking suspiciously at the bedroom door. He's a lyric of that wants watching. I suppose he's not listening. How can he be listening without the music going? That's right. Maybe somebody's behind a curtain. Too many curtains in this room. As he looked around, he suddenly saw for the first time the effigy in the window and stood staring and pointing too amazed for words. It's only a dummy, said the Count. A fake, is it? Well, strike me. Madame Tussaud ain't in it. It's a living spit of him, gown in all. 
But them curtains count. Oh, confound the curtains. We are wasting our time, and there is none too much. He can lag us over the stone. The deuce he can. But he'll let us slip, if we only tell him where the swag is. What? Give it up? Give up a hundred thousand quid? It's one or the other. Merton scratched his short-cropped pate. He's alone in there. Let's do him in. If his light were out, we should have nothing to fear. The Count shook his head. He's armed and ready. If we shot him, we could hardly get away in a place like this. Besides, it's likely enough that the police know whatever evidence he has got. Hello. What was that? There was a vague sound which seemed to come from the window. Both men sprang round, but all was quiet, save for the one strange figure seated in the chair. The room was certainly empty. Something in the street, said Merton. Now look here, Governor. You've got the brains. Surely you can think a way out of it. If slugging is no use, then it's up to you. I've fooled better men than he, the Count answered. The stone is here in my secret pocket. I take no chances leaving it about. It can be out of England tonight and cut into four pieces in Amsterdam before Sunday. He knows nothing of Van Seder. I thought Van Seder was going next week. He was. But now he must get off by the next boat. One or the other of us must slip round with the stone to Lime Street and tell him. But the false bottom ain't ready. Well, he must take it as it is and chance it. There's not a moment to lose. Again, with the sense of danger which becomes an instinct with the sportsman, he paused and looked hard at the window. Yes, it was surely from the street that the faint sound had come. As to Holmes, he continued, we can fool him easily enough. You see, the damned fool won't arrest us if he can get the stone. Well, we'll promise him the stone. We'll put him on the wrong track about it. And before he finds that it is the wrong track, it will be in Holland and we out of the country. That sounds good to me, cried Sam Merton with a grin. You go on and tell the Dutchman to get a move on him. I'll see this sucker and fill him up with bogus confession. I'll tell him that the stone is in Liverpool. Confound that whining music. It gets on my nerves. By the time he finds it isn't in Liverpool, it will be in quarters and we on the blue water. Come back here, out of line with that keyhole. Here is the stone. I wonder you dare carry it. Where could I have it safer? If we could take it out of Whitehall, someone else could surely take it out of my lodgings. Let's have a look at it. Count Silvius cast a somewhat unflattering glance at his associate and disregarded the unwashed hand which was extended towards him. What do you think I'm going to snatch it off you? See here, mister. I'm getting a bit tired of your ways. Well, well. No offense, Sam. We can't afford the quarrel. Come over to the window if you want to see the beauty properly. Now hold it to the light. Here. 
Thank you. With a single spring, Holmes had leaped from the dummy's chair and had grasped the precious jewel. He held it now in one hand, while his other pointed a revolver at the Count's head. The two villains staggered back in utter amazement. Before they had recovered, Holmes had pressed the electric bell. No violence, gentlemen. No violence, I beg of you. Consider the furniture. It must be very clear to you that your position is an impossible one. The police are waiting below. The Count's bewilderment overmastered his rage and fear. But how the deuce? He gasped. Your surprise is very natural. You are not aware that a second door from my bedroom leads behind the curtain. I fancied that you must have heard me when I displaced the figure. But luck was on my side. It gave me a chance of listening to your racy conversation, which would have been painfully constrained had you been aware of my presence. The Count gave a gesture of resignation. We give you best, Holmes. I believe you are the devil himself. Not far from him, at any rate, Holmes answered with a polite smile. Sam Merton's slow intellect had only gradually appreciated the situation. Now, as the sound of heavy steps came from the stairs outside, he broke silence at last. A fair cop, said he. But I say... What about that blooming fiddle? I hear it yet. Holmes answered. You are perfectly right. Let it play. These modern gramophones are a remarkable invention. There was an inrush of police. The handcuffs clicked and the criminals were led to the waiting cab. Watson lingered with Holmes, congratulating him upon this fresh leaf added to his laurels. Once more, their conversation was interrupted by the imperturbable Billy with his card tray. Lord Cantlemere, sir. Show him up, Billy. This is the eminent peer who represents the very highest interests, said Holmes. He is an excellent and loyal person, but rather of the old regime. Shall we make him unbend? Dare we venture upon a slight liberty? He knows, we may conjecture, nothing of what has occurred. The door opened to admit a thin, austere figure with a hatchet face and drooping mid-Victorian whiskers of a glossy blackness which hardly corresponded with the rounded shoulders and feeble gait. Holmes advanced affably and shook an unresponsive hand. How do you do, Lord Cantlemere? It is chilly for the time of year, but rather warm indoors. May I take your overcoat? No, I thank you. I will not take it off. Holmes laid his hand insistently upon the sleeve. Pray allow me. My friend Dr. Watson would assure you that these changes of temperature are most insidious. His lordship shook himself free with some impatience. I am quite comfortable, sir. I have no need to stay. I've simply looked in to know how your self-appointed task was progressing. It is difficult, very difficult. 
I feared that you would find it so. There was a distinct sneer in the old courtier's words and manner. Every man finds his limitations, Mr. Holmes, but at least it cures us of the weakness of self-satisfaction. Yes, sir. I have been much perplexed. No doubt. Especially upon one point. Possibly you could help me upon it? You apply for my advice rather late in the day. I thought you had your own all-sufficient methods. Still, I am ready to help you. You see, Lord Cantlemere, we can no doubt frame a case against the actual thieves. When you have caught them... Exactly. But the question is, how shall we proceed against the receiver? Is this not rather premature? It is as well to have our plans ready. Now, what would you regard as final evidence against the receiver? The actual possession of the stone. You would arrest him upon that? Most undoubtedly. Holmes seldom laughed, but he got as near it as his old friend Watson could remember. In that case, my dear sir, I shall be under the painful necessity of advising your arrest. Lord Cantlemere was very angry. Some of the ancient fires flickered up into his sallow cheeks. You take great liberty, Mr. Holmes. In fifty years of official life, I cannot recall such a case. I'm a busy man, sir, engaged upon important affairs, and I have no time or taste for foolish jokes. I may tell you frankly, sir, that I have never been a believer in your powers, and that I have always been of the opinion that the matter was far safer in the hands of the regular police force. Your conduct confirms all my conclusions. I have the honor, sir, to wish you good evening. Holmes had swiftly changed his position and was between the pier and the door. One moment, sir, said he. To actually go off with the Mazarin stone would be a more serious offense than to be found in the temporary possession of it. Sir, this is intolerable. Let me pass. Put your hand in the right-hand pocket of your overcoat. What do you mean, sir? Come, come. Do what I ask. An instant later, the amazed peer was standing, blinking and stammering with the great yellow stone on his shaking palm. What? What? How is this, Mr. Holmes? Too bad, Lord Cantlemere, too bad, cried Holmes. My old friend here will tell you that I have an impish habit of practical joking, also that I can never resist a dramatic situation. I took the liberty, the very great liberty, I admit, of putting the stone into your pocket at the beginning of our interview. The old peer stared from the stone to the smiling face before him. Sir! I am bewildered, but, yes, it is indeed the Mazarin Stone. We are greatly your debtors, Mr. Holmes. Your sense of humor may, as you admit, be somewhat perverted. 
and its exhibition remarkably untimely. But at least, I withdraw any reflection I have made upon your amazing professional powers. But how? The case is but half finished. The details can wait. No doubt, Lord Cantlemere, your pleasure in telling of this successful result in the exalted circle to which you return will be some small atonement for my practical joke. Billy, you will show his lordship out, and tell Mrs. Hudson that I should be glad if she would send up dinner for two as soon as possible. End of The Adventure of the Mazarin Stone, Part 2 First of all, massive applause to Sherlock for finding a way to successfully exploit technology for his own gain, because I knew him to be a skilled violin player, completely fooled, did not consider this revolutionary audio technology known as a gramophone. And apparently, the Count and Sam just automatically assumed that Sherlock knew how to play a violin proficiently, because nobody questioned the man taking the violin into his office. They just, all they cared about was the noise. And that brings me to my second point. I listened to the audio from a gramophone, and quite frankly, it sounded like a flamingo yodeling alongside some scratchy noises. So, either I listened to a bad clip, which admittedly is very possible, or the sound quality was a lot clearer coming out of Sherlock's gramophone. Which brings me to my third slash fourth point, which is... Okay, think about this. This fine piece of audio technology has existed since 1887, and you're telling me that you cannot tell the difference between the sounds coming out of a gramophone and a live violin? <laughs> yeah. Little bit suspicious, questioning the ear health of our friends in 1920s England after World War One. Thirdly, and this is where I'm going to park for a little bit, imagine if Sherlock decided to pull off this stunt in the 21st century. Um, here's what I imagine would have happened. He would have just pulled up a YouTube video played it through some fine speakers, called it good. Now, you may know where I'm going to with this next. You may understand the problem that will exist. But here's what's going to happen. He's going to start the video. Hoffman's Barracole is going to blast through his spatial audio speakers. And he's going to get into position to switch out with the dummy. And as he's doing that... We're going through the fourth movement. I don't know, just <laughs> pulled out a random violin term that I've heard before. Um, and it's about to, like, reach the crescendo or whatever. And all of a sudden, an ad blasts on the screen. And it's like, are you tired of doing your own taxes? Try turb, you know, or something like that. And, like, you're welcome. Now you're going to just get tax ads for the foreseeable future. Uh, do your taxes. And, you know, that would be so annoying and would blow this whole scheme to high heaven. But I was thinking, I was like, what would be a good ad to play through a gramophone in 1921? Because 
quite frankly, I was disappointed with the advertising agencies that did not decide to capitalize on this fine piece of audio technology in 1921, where you got maybe, I don't know, five minutes worth of audio um, in your records. I'm just type off the sizing. Here's what I was thinking, and, you know, wasn't thinking about this too hard. Pulled up Evans Cycles, was founded in 1921, a bicycle company. Now, initially, this ad may sound like a bad PETA commercial, but I promise you, it becomes a very family-friendly ad at the end. So, tell me if you uh, resonate with this, you know, on a, on a deep level, and if you're emotionally moved by what I'm about to say. <clears throat> Here we go. Since the dawn of the wheel, mankind has sought countless ways to exploit animals and exercise animal cruelty against horses. Even now, in 1921, with the ushering in of the automobile, the denigrating term horsepower is still prevalent in society today. Until... Hi, my name is Frederick Evans of Evans Cycles, here to tell you about a wonderful invention, completely man-powered. It's called a bicycle. And now it comes in three colors, black, white, and gray. Join the movement. Power the next level of our transportation with humans. And, I mean, that's essentially the gist, you know? I think that would be a really successful ad that a gramophone could play in the middle of a violin solo. I don't know what they call them. Uh, <laughs> And, you know, things could have gone very differently for our friends in this case. And Sherlock may still have gotten the diamond out of their hands because they would be absolutely stunned by the quality of that ad. So, that's my hypothesis. I, I mean, again, Sherlock was a brilliant man. And um, I think that this, the case still turned out all right despite the convenient second door. Um, but thank you so much for listening to another episode of Reading Cadence. I am your host, the displaced Wisconsinite Phil Olson. And, as they say in showbiz, that's all he wrote for now. <laughs>